Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law, and I'm the host of this podcast. It's a podcast which seeks to explore and explain different perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the laws of war. Today, I'm speaking with Adil Haq, who will certainly be well known to all the academics in this area of law, but for everyone else, he is a professor of law and the Judge John O. Newman Scholar at Rutgers Law School in Newark, New Jersey. His scholarship focuses on the law and ethics of armed conflict, international criminal law, and criminal law theory. He is the author of the book Law and Morality at War, published by Oxford University Press in 2013, and a host of other scholarly articles. Many listeners will also know Adil from his extensive writing and as an editor on the Just Security blog. Before joining the Academy, Adil practiced at Debevoise in Plimpton in New York City, where he focused on white-collar criminal work and prisoners' rights litigation. Now, the primary focus of our discussion today is indeed an analysis that Adil has published in two blog posts on Just Security commemorating the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. And if you haven't had a chance to read them yet, as you will hear, they present a far more significant argument than is typical for blog posts. In them, and on the basis of a deep dive into the travel preparatoire and other historical records regarding the negotiating process of the United Nations Charter, Adil is reassessing the relationship between the use of force in Article 2.4 of the Charter, the concept of aggression as it is referred to in Chapter 7 of the Charter, and the right of self-defense in Article 51 of the Charter. And this reassessment leads to some very important and underappreciated implications. These both reinforce the validity of certain standard interpretations of the Charter, but some of them definitely challenge other long-standing views. So I think you'll find it a fascinating discussion. And we do also speak very briefly about his book, which is on IHL, not USAD Bellum, just enough to tease listeners into wanting to get a copy of it for their reading pile. So with that, I bring you Adil Haq. Well, Adil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me. So before we dive into the substance, you know, I've, I've been asking people to share a little bit something about themselves that, uh, you know, many of your colleagues wouldn't actually know about you. Yeah, so I think um, listeners, to the extent that, you know, they've, maybe they've, they've read my work or, or, you know, heard my name somewhere, um, it's probably because of my blog posts on Just Security which we'll be discussing today. Um, and they may not actually know that um, I'm actually primarily a legal philosopher. And so in my just security posts, I tend to keep them quite doctrinal and black letter and use very mainstream methods of international law um, uh, argument to, to make whatever point I'm trying to, to make. Uh, but most of my scholarship is actually about using uh, legal and moral philosophy to illuminate different aspects of international law. So earlier in my career, I focused more on international criminal law, uh, then moving on and really focusing on the law of armed conflict, uh, international humanitarian law, now doing more on the law of interstate force, USAD Bellum, um, and actually moving into more work on the sources of international law treaties, custom, use tokens, that type of thing. And yeah, so that's a whole other side of my uh, scholarship that people might not know about, but that's something I do as well. 
Interesting. And and so maybe, you know, just to follow on that, I, how, how did you fall into the, the profession of, of being an academic? And what led you to this particular you know, area of both law and philosophy? Yeah, so it's a funny path. So I actually had an interest in international law and international criminal law uh, from when I was a teenager, because my mother worked at the United Nations. She worked on uh, Africa. And so, and this was also the time in the 90s when um, the international tribunals were starting up, the International Criminal Court was being negotiated and, and coming into force. And so those ideas were, were kind of alive for me at that point. But I always thought that I would be uh, an international criminal lawyer, that I would practice, that I would be uh, an international criminal prosecutor. And uh, it was in college, really, that I... Um, realized that, that actually I, I'm much more interested and much more uh, suited to being an academic. And so the main question was going to be whether I would be primarily uh, a legal academic or primarily a philosopher or try to find some way to blend the two. And uh, hopefully I found a way to blend the two. And uh, yeah, and then I guess, so starting from that same interest actually in international criminal law, realizing that to really understand war crimes, I needed to understand the law of armed conflict in a, a very uh, nuanced way, drew me into that area. That exposed me to an entirely different body of philosophical scholarship. And then eventually just getting drawn into the law of interstate force just because it's so important and in so many ways, limiting the resort to force is, uh, is actually more important than regulating uh, its conduct. So that's sort of how I've been led here. So I we could talk about a whole host of different topics, not least of which is your book, which in fact, I think, reflects the marriage of law and philosophy. And we'll come back to, to talk a little bit about that at, towards the end of the conversation. But as you mentioned, you, you recently published these uh, two posts on just security in commemoration of the 75th anniversary of the United Nations, in which you explore the relationship between the use of force, self-defense, uh, acts of aggression and the whole collective security apparatus of, of the United Nations Charter. And there's a lot more in there than a typical blog post. I'm, I'm hoping that this is the start of some bigger project. Um, so I thought we could just focus on this because I think there's just a, a, a lot there to talk about. And before I sort of dive in with a, a whole series of questions, I thought maybe you could just walk us through sort of the overarching uh, argument that you present in these two posts. Sure. So. Um... I think that in international law, uh, both in academic debates and policy debates, and actually in our teaching as well, we tend to present the relationship between Article 2.4, which I should uh, tell listeners uh, prohibits the use of force, and Article 51, which permits the uh, exercise of the right of self-defense. We tend to present them um, as relating to each other in, in two ways. So first, we tend to say that an armed attack, which triggers the right of self-defense under Article 51, is a use of force of particular gravity. So a grave violation of Article 2.4 triggers Article 51. So that's the first relationship between the two. And then the second relationship between the two is that Article 51 is an exception to Article 2.4. So Article 2.4 prohibits force, but under Article 51, force in self-defense is permitted as an exceptional measure. And as the 75th anniversary of the UN Charter was approaching, I decided it might be fun 
for myself uh, to just revisit the, the drafting history and actually walk through it in roughly the same uh, time span as it was actually being negotiated. And what I found there um, changed my view in one way uh, of how the charter really works and, and reinforced uh, a view in another way. So first, the idea that an armed attack is a grave use of force, um, I now think is not quite right. It is, so first, just based on the, the text of Article 51, you might already be thinking that an armed attack is really an act of aggression. And the reason for that is that Article 51 comes at the end of Chapter 7, the heading of which is actions in respect of dot, 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 acts of aggression. Several of the operative provisions are about the responsibility of the Security Council to determine the existence of an act of aggression and take measures to uh, maintain international peace and security. And then you get Article 51 at the end, which talks about an armed attack. So you might already be thinking, well, hang on a second, maybe an armed attack is a kind of act of aggression. Mm -hmm. And as I um, dug into the, what we call the preparatory work, uh, the negotiating history, um, it just overwhelmingly reinforced that reading uh, that states uniformly uh, discussed armed attacks either as a form of acts of aggression or as a, a kind of equivalent uh, of acts of aggression. So every reference is self-defense against aggression. And there's actually no direct connection between the prohibition of force and the right of self-defense or the concept of force and the concept of, uh, of armed attack. Uh, the closest you get is this uh, draft um, uh, provision that Panama suggested actually as, um, as part of chapter two, which would have said something along the lines of force may be used against unauthorized force. That's sort of the closest you get, but it's never discussed. And so the rest of the drafting history, again, uniformly understands aggression as the trigger of the right of self-defense and armed attack as either a form of aggression or as an equivalent of aggression. And, um, and so that a, a, was a really striking uh, finding to me. And just to kind of complete the, the circle, it's really only in the 1970s with um, a General Assembly resolution defi that defines aggression in terms of a use of force in terms of a grave violation of Article 2.4, that we then have what is presented as a sort of standard view that, it is a, that a grave use of force constitutes an armed attack and triggers the right of self-defense. But the way we get there is completely different than the way we discuss it, present it to our students, uh, debate it in, in public fora. It's a much more complex picture, and it takes longer to crystallize than I think. Um, so many of us present. That's fascinating. Um, and so, I mean, it gives rise to a host of questions. But before I get into some of the, the sort of more nitty gritty questions, I guess one question that just flows out of your, your description right there is if the idea that an act of aggression is a grave use of force only sort of comes into existence in the 1970s, what were the drafters thinking constituted an act of aggression that would give rise to the, to the right of self-defense? I mean, if not, some kind of grave use of force. Yeah, so there were, um, there were proposals to at least have um, 
an illustrative list or, or in particular to identify um, acts that the Security Council must consider aggression. So it wouldn't be discretionary. You have to determine these sorts of acts to be aggression. And those did involve grave uses of force. So there was, even in 1945, some understanding that, that there, there's obviously some relationship between these things, right? Even, even if you just think that an armed attack is a form of aggression, there's going to be some relationship to the idea of a use of force there. But again, it, it, it took much longer to, to crystallize. Another way of thinking about it is if you think about the prohibition of the use of force as um, a new constraint on state action that crystallizes in Article 2.4, the content of the right of self-defense already has some structure to it uh, before Article 2.4 comes onto the scene. And it's only later that these concepts become integrated as we now, um, as we now understand them. One last way of putting it. Um, so if you think of a, a right of self-defense as a response to a legal wrong, and you want to ask, well, what is the legal wrong? At the time, people thought the legal wrong was aggression, not the use of force in violation of Article 2.4. So they thought there was already a legal wrong that existed in international law called aggression. And that's what triggers the right of self-defense. And the purpose of 51 was to clarify that it's one form of aggression, armed attack. So we might use aggression in more loose terms elsewhere, but it's only one kind of aggression, armed attack, that triggers the right of self-defense as it's recognized under the, the Charter. Hmm. It's really this, again, it, it sort of, it raises the question of, well, but wasn't this armed attack some kind of a use of force? And to use the language of the ICJ later in time, yep. a, a, a most grave use of force? So maybe we can distinguish between um, force as a, a matter of fact and force as a, a question of law. And so as a factual matter, maybe every act of armed aggression involves force in the factual sense. But at least in 1945, it wasn't clear that it involves force in the legal sense. Right? Force is this term of art that's used in Article 2.4 that defines the scope of that prohibition. That connection between these legal concepts crystallizes only over time, even if, as a matter of fact, there's going to be a lot of overlap between these three ideas. Interesting. Now, I know you didn't get into this in your blog post, but I'm wondering if, as you were doing this research, you were thinking back to this negotiation of the Kellogg-Briand Pact. And even then, there was this reluctance to get into well, what constitutes aggression. And is there a right of self-defense? And they wouldn't even include the right of self-defense in the actual treaty. But there were these side letters that reassured everyone that, of course, there was this inherent right of self-defense. So how does that play into the thinking of the negotiators of the Charter? It certainly plays a role. So specifically with respect to Article 51, there's um, a very important moment after the first draft is circulated among the five powers, because the first draft says that the right of individual self-defense is triggered by aggression, and only the right of collective self-defense is triggered by an armed attack. So there's actually a difference in the terminology. The reason for that is that collective self-defense was specifically with respect to 
um, collective self-defense under the act, the act of Chapultepec, which was a collective security arrangement among the American states. And the act of Chapultepec used the term attack. So they wanted to make it really, really clear that collective self-defense permits, authorizes, uh, allows the sorts of actions contemplated by the act of Chapultepec. But individual self-defense was triggered by aggression. And one of the British delegates said, hang on, we've been trying to define aggression for 30 years without success. Do we really want to leave it to individual states to decide when aggression has occurred and therefore when they can take action without um, Security Council authorization? And it seems that it's in response to that that the term ag aggression is removed and armed attack is used for both individual self-defense and collective self-defense. So that's one um, very important moment in which the same type of thinking reemerges. that because aggression is a more vague term, it's a, a less precise term, should we really use it or should we use uh, a more narrow and precise term like armed attack that more clearly conveys what is, what is meant? So it's a very important moment when a similar type of thinking arises. So I want to sort of zoom back out and sort of ask, okay, the so what question. Yeah. Right. And in particular, I guess, you know, so when I was reading the post uh, where I thought this was going, uh, I was thinking, well, this clearly, so it's, to, to set the stage for what I'm about to say, I and mean, just for listeners who um, may not recall that the United States takes the position that any use of force constitutes an armed attack triggering the right of self-defense. And the rest of the world, for the most part, follows the ICJ's position that an armed attack is a, the most grave form of uh, use of force, that there is a gap in terms of effect and scale and intensity between a low-level use of force that will be a violation of Article 2.4 and an armed attack that will trigger the right of self-defense under Article 51. So where I thought this was going was, well, clearly, an armed attack is a act of aggression, ergo, a grave form of the use of force. It's not just your run-of-the-mill use of force, and there is, in fact, and so the Americans are wrong, the world is right. But it seems that you're actually making sort of a more significant argument here, that there's some greater significance to our having missed the role of aggression. And for instance, at one point, you point out that the ICJ in Nicaragua has this nuanced view about the relationship between aggression and self-defense. And then in oil platforms, they kind of skip this. And you suggest that there's some significance to this, but I wanted you to sort of unpack what that is. Sure. So one way of thinking about it is this. So the, the way the standard view usually gets presented is as a textual argument where you say, okay, Article 2.4 talks about force, Article 51 talks about armed attack. As we've just been discussing, there's clearly a relationship here. These are concepts are both clearly about the same or similar subject matter that we can just call violence, acts of violence, right? And yet, they're different terms. And generally, when you interpret a legal text and you see different terms for the same subject matter, you assume that they must carry a different meaning. And in this context, it seems like, okay, an armed attack must be a more grave form of the use of force. That has to be the difference. And I actually think that as a textual argument, that 
makes a lot of sense. I, I accepted that textual argument for many, many years uh, until just recently. Um, but it, it is thin, right? It is just a textual argument. And I think whenever there are uh, policy reasons, national security reasons for that a state thinks it has for taking a certain action, and all you can say in response is, well, here's a textual argument based on these kind of two terms and some principles of interpretation. It, that argument um, may lack the depth and context to be persuasive. And, and I think that what the part one of the post adds is first that historical depth. So first we see this isn't just literalism. This is not a, su a surface reading of the text of the charter. This captures something really important about what people believed and intended and understood and negotiated and wanted. So it's not us projecting something onto the text. And second, and this is really kind of moving into part two, it also explains why they had this view. And so jumping ahead a little bit, it's because a use of force that is not sufficiently grave to constitute armed aggression and therefore not sufficiently grave to constitute an armed attack is a breach of the peace. And it's the responsibility of the Security Council to determine that a breach of the peace has occurred and take steps to ensure international peace and security. So it's not a mistake. It's not a, a gap, as we often say. No, the gap is filled. Right. Mm -hmm. The gap is filled by the Security Council, and this is all by design. Right? So it's part of the structure of the charter right, for this gap between force and armed attack to exist. It's not an accident of the, of the text. Right? There, there's a deeper rationale there. The other thing is, you, know, you mentioned the, the ICJ. I think that we now understand Nicaragua in... Um, a more sophisticated way. So, for example, you know, why did the ICJ look to the General Assembly's definition of aggression to answer the question, when is a state responsible for an armed attack in virtue of the actions of um, an irregular group? Why would they look to the defini definition of aggression to answer that question? Well, now we know, right? It's because they understood that self-defense was a response to aggression. The definition of aggression tells us now how better how to understand aggression. And therefore, you look to that definition and you see, oh, I see the sending of armed bands is a form of armed aggression if it reaches this threshold of gravity. That's why they look to it to resolve the question in, in Nicaragua. So again, I, I think even if you end up at similar conclusions as you would under the standard view. Again, there's more depth, there's more um, context, and, and I think there's more uh, persuasiveness when you understand this kind of broader history. Right. So, and, and so if I understood you correctly, I think that on this point, your research and this understanding of the relationship does in fact reinforce the sort of worldview, the ICJ view that an armed attack is indeed a grave form of use of force because it's an act of aggression. Now, there are some other implications from this relationship that 
are a bit more controversial, which we'll come back to. But I think before we get to those, it might be useful for you to uh, just explain a little bit more sort of the argument that's in the second or part two of the post, which really unpacks the importance of, of Article 51 being part of the collective security apparatus in Chapter 7 and what, that, and what the significance of that is. Great. So this picks up with the second aspect of what I'm calling the standard view, which says that Article 51 is an exception to Article 2.4. So Article 2.4 prohibits force. Article 51 creates an exception for force used in self-defense. And what I argue is that, um, and, and the way we often present it to our students, is that Article 2.4 has two exceptions, security council authorization and self-defense. And what I'm arguing is that, no, there's actually one exception, Security Council authorization. And self-defense is an exception to Security Council authorization. So if you want to visualize it, imagine you have two Russian dolls. Are they side by side or is one inside the other? And I'm arguing that one is inside the other. So Article 51 is a, a kind of nested exception. It's an exception to an exception to Article 2.4. Part of the argument, so part of the argument um, has already been, been flagged. If you just look at the structure of Chapter 7 and Article 51 comes at the end, it, it reads like a residual backstop clause. If the Security Council fails to do what it's supposed to do under Articles 39 through 50, 51 is there to kind of catch, to catch those cases until the Security Council takes necessary measures. So it might just be apparent on the face of the of the text. But when you look at the drafting history, it becomes overwhelming because the people who negotiated both the text of Article 51 and its placement in Chapter 7 were clear, unequivocal, and essentially uniform. And particularly in the coordination committee that settles the question, where should Article 51 be located? Should it stay in what's now Chapter 7? Should it be moved somewhere else? They actually use the magic words. Uh, the US delegate, the Soviet delegate, the Chinese delegate, they all say this is an exception to the general rule under Chapter 7, which is that the Security Council deals with acts of aggression. There is this Australian delegate who, it, said something like, well, you know, maybe, it, maybe for 51 could be its own section. Maybe we could even go back and put it in Chapter 2, which is where Article 2.4 is. But he never explains his rationale. He gives up very, very easily <laughs> and, and goes with um, uh, the U.S., Soviet, and, and Chinese delegates and, and agrees, okay, yeah, Chapter 7 is, is where it belongs. And again, this makes sense that the rule is that the Security Council identifies threats to the peace, breaches of the peace, and acts of aggression, and takes measures, including forcible measures, to maintain international peace and security. If it fails in that task and an armed attack occurs before it can discharge its responsibilities, the state that is the subject of the attack can act in self defense until. The Security Council does its job, takes the necessary measures, maintains international peace and security. While all this is going on, the state has a duty to report that it's using force to alert the Security Council, we're doing this, you may want to get involved here. And there's even that, that clause that says, and, and nothing in Article 51 
right, detracts from the authority and responsibility of the Security Council. And this is one of the reasons why the drafters, one of the drafters in particular, insisted Chapter 7 is the only place where Article 51 would make any sense. Because and he says, one could argue that Article 51 is about the right of self-defense, but really it's about the Security Council. So that part of the negotiating history, again, I, I think is really unequivocal. The trickier part is how does Chapter 7 as a whole relate to uh, Article 2.4? And there, I, I think things are a little more delicate, but I think you can understand how it's supposed to work. So Article 2.4 prohibits force that is inconsistent with the purposes of the organization. Article 1.1 tells you what the relevant purpose is, which is to take collective measures to suppress acts of aggression, and the keyword is collective. So that's how um, Chapter 7 as a whole is reconciled with Article 2.4. That's why it's uh, consistent with the purposes of the Charter. And then you just have to answer this one last question. Well, okay, but self-defense isn't itself collective. In and of itself, it, it's individual or, or you know, collective in kind of the regional sense. But so how, how does that work? And what I argue and what I, I, I think is, is confirmed by the preparatory work is that self-defense is consistent with the purposes of the organization to the extent that it is consistent with collective measures taken by the Security Council in this way, right. by being this backstop. And again, there's some confirmation uh, from this because the rapporteur for uh, this part of the charter in response to a very interesting um, proposal, uh, which we can talk about or not, says unilateral uses of force are off the table. Legitimate self-defense is admitted. How? Because the, the legitimate use of force exists only to back up decisions of the organization right? or to carry out those, uh, those decisions. So that, I think, confirms this understanding that self-defense gets is consistent with the purposes of the, of the organization to the extent that it is consistent with the predominant role of the Security Council um, in this domain. Interesting. And, and, and consistent with the ICJ's view that it, when exercising the right of self-defense, you will have to immediately advise the Security Council and, and presumably cease and desist once the Security Council takes up the issue. So how does this, I mean, you will know that a number of people, the first person that pops to mind is Yen and I think, that take the position that there's an inherent right of self-defense in customary international law that is broader than the right of self-defense as defined in Article 51. And because of the language of Article 51, it does not interfere with this broader, inherent customary international law right of self-defense. I mean, your reading of this presumably just puts paid to that, that argument entirely. That's right. Um, so the right of self-defense is inherent in the sense that it is not created by the charter. Whatever its legal basis is, and that's a very interesting question. Jens has very interesting ideas about it. Um, whatever its source, right? It's a separate question whether its exercise is limited by the charter. And the terms of the charter, this contextual reading that I've provided, and the drafting history make it very, very clear 
that the intent, the understanding was to limit self-defense to uh, cases where an armed attack occurs. Um, this is true within the U.S. delegation. It's true in the negotiations among uh, the five powers, um, and it's never uh, it's never contradicted. And so, for example, with respect to anticipatory self-defense, there's a very explicit conversation within the U.S. delegation where one delegate says, "Hang on a second. These terms, if an armed attack occurs, that seems to preclude anticipatory self-defense." And the response is. Yes, it does. That is intentional and sound because we don't want this right exercise prior to an armed attack. And again, in the context of Chapter 7, you understand why. Because threats to the peace are to be identified and confronted by the Security Council in the first instance. And it's only if the Security Council fails and that threat materializes as an armed attack that the right of self-defense uh, can play that supporting role within that collective system. Yeah, so I, I thought, you know, this part of the, the blog post was fascinating that the uh, drafting history suggests that the American delegation in particular was advancing all of these positions and in particular was ruling out the possibility of anticipatory self-defense, where of course the United States is now a champion of anticipatory self-defense. So. We'll come back to the question of, well, where do we stand with respect to anticipatory self-defense? But I think the broader sort of question that all of this uh, brings to the fore is sort of, what are the implications for your research and this argument for the standard view, the American view, the current view? So where are we with respect to the relationship between use of force, self-defense, aggression, Article 51? Yeah, so, you know, as with the first post, I think the implications of my argument are similar to the implications of what I'm calling the standard view. So anticipatory self-defense is not, was not permitted in 1945. Um, self-defense against um, acts of violence, civil low gravity were not permitted. Self-defense against non-state actors was not permitted. Those follow from both approaches. Again, what I think that what I think we learn from the arguments that I'm advancing is that again, these are not mistakes or oversights. They're not that this is not just literalism. Right. That these terms reflect a deeper understanding and a deeper purpose than we often recognize in contemporary debates. So the terms, if an armed attack occurs, that's not just a kind of literalist gotcha to argue against anticipatory self-defense. It reflects a much deeper and much more considered view that looming threats are to be dealt with collectively. And it's only if that collective mechanism fails that individual states have this residual right to act in their own self-defense. Similarly with non-state actors, it's not just that armed attacks were a kind of aggression and only states can commit aggression. Therefore, there's no right of self-defense under Article 51 against non-state actors. It's that it is for states 
to settle their disputes by peaceful means. So if there is a non-state actor on the territory of another state who is posing threats or committing acts of violence against another state, those two states are supposed to work that out, including by bringing the Security Council in to specifically settle their disputes. Um, so again, I, I think that if we understand how Article 51 fits within the broader structure of the Charter and the historical understanding that that structure reflects, uh, I think we better understand why these implications follow and why they are reasonable and defensible and not accidents of drafting. Okay, so before I chase down some of those implications, I just want to rewind for a second to what you just said about non-state actors, because one of the things that actually was not entirely clear to me when I read the post and I sort of flagged as a, something I wanted to bring up was, was precisely this position on non-state actors. And, and I got the sense that there was this implicit argument that, that non-state actors can't commit armed attacks because non-state actors can't commit acts of aggression. But it wasn't entirely clear to me why it is that non-state actors cannot commit acts of aggression. So where, where does that come from? So again, you know, we can use these terms in kind of a, a factual sense or a legal sense. So there might be a factual sense in which, you know, you can commit aggression, right? You can you know, commit a violent act for no reason or something like that. And in a kind of colloquial way, you can see, wow, you know, Craig was really aggressive. What he did was aggression. But the legal norm against aggression is a norm that applies to states and it prohibits a particular kind of state action. Yeah, so it's in that sense that non state actors can't commit aggression. It's not that they can't commit acts of violence, it's just that the prohibition of aggression doesn't apply to them. And aggression, as a legal term of art, does not describe what they're doing. But if the UN General Assembly's resolution on the definition of aggression, includes the sending of armed bands yeah. by non-state actors into another state, that that constitutes an act of aggression. Sure. And, and surely, I mean, certainly today, most people, I think, accept that the 9-11 attacks by al-Qaeda were an armed attack, presumably also an act of aggression. Now, we can get into the whole question of to what extent you need to be able to attribute those acts to a state, and maybe you're going to tell me that that is precisely the central issue. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so 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 um, maybe this will, will will clear things up. So I use non-state actor to mean an independent non-state actor. So a non-state actor whose actions are not attributable to a state. So in the definition of aggression, the idea is that if a state sends armed bands into another state, the state is committing aggression. It's not the ban. And similarly, if a state is directing, instructing, controlling an armed group, then it is the state that is carrying out an armed attack sort of through the um, mechanism of these particular uh, individuals. Um, so yes, yeah, so I just use non-state actor, particularly in, in blog posts and whatnot, as a shorthand for independent non-state actor, uh, one acting without the, uh, not under the control of a, of a state. But that gets into, I mean, we could spend a whole other and maybe we will uh, have to have another um, podcast session to discuss questions like attribution and imminence and, and, and all of the trappings of the unwilling or unable doctrine. But 
But that seems to beg the question of, well, but when is a non-state actor truly independent and, and what are the criteria for attributing the actions of the non-state actor to a state? I mean, was Al-Qaeda under the control of the Taliban? Arguably, and almost certainly not. And yet, the actions of Al-Qaeda were attributed to uh, the Taliban, in part because of subsequent adoption or acquiescence and, and those sorts of arguments. So where do we stand? And where do you stand? So we, we can first sort of, where do we stand on non-state actors and, sure. and the unwilling or unable doctrine? But, but this also leads to the broader question of, I, I think at the end of, of your most recent posts, you're sort of agnostic on the extent to which subsequent state practice might have modified this, what you're claiming is the, the best understanding of the charter, both in terms of text and original intent and meaning. But in your Latin American origins post, in which you explain the Latin American influence on the drafting of the charter, you're actually much more, you know, you take the position that there's very mixed subsequent state practice, and that that is evidence for why subsequent state practice should not be given much weight in terms of our understanding of the charter which suggests to me that you're actually saying, actually, the original intent is, is perhaps the best understanding, the implications of which are that anticipatory self-defense is still not permitted, non-state actors still cannot commit uh, acts of aggression or armed attacks, so take it away. <laughs> yeah, great. So I think that is, um, is right. So I, I think that if you look at the clear, uh, clearly of Latin American origin uh, post, there I do get into subsequent uh, state practice. And as you say, what I, I try to show is that, you know, look, first of all, most of the states in the world have not taken a very clear position on non-state actors. And the states that have spoken directly on it are very, very mixed. So you have a number of states who have accepted something like the, what we call the unwilling or unable standard, which just means that Article 51 permits self-defense against essentially any kind of non-state actor that carries out an armed attack. Then you have another group of mainly European states who say, well, it's not any non-state actor. It, a non-state actor who exercises substantial territorial control, if it carries out an armed attack, then Article 51 kicks in. You have a third view reflected most explicitly by France, which says, look, in general, there is no self-defense against non-state actors. ISIS is an exception because it's what France calls a, qual a quasi-state. Right? It's only this very, very unique kind of non-state actor, a quasi-state actor that uh, triggers Article 51. And then you have these other states, primarily Latin American states like Mexico and Brazil, who say, no. Article 51 doesn't apply to non-state actors. That's not what it's about. You know, deal with it through other, deal with those problems through other, other mechanisms. So that is how I see the current lay of the land. So I don't think that 9-11 consolidated any new understanding. I think that's obviously not the case. Uh, if you don't have France on your side, then there isn't even a, a Western or NATO consensus on these issues, uh, let alone a, a consensus shared by states in the global south or, or elsewhere. I guess the last thing that I'll say is that often in these debates, there's um, an imprecision about whether we're talking about the charter, which is a treaty, or customary international law. And when we talk about state practice, do we mean 
state practice in the Pinea Juris and the customary international law sense? Do we mean subsequent state practice in the treaty interpretation sense? And I think that actually really matters. That's interesting. Because there's a view according to which customary international law shifts with the wind. <laughs> As state practice moves in one direction or another, customary international law shifts with it. In contrast, in the law of treaties, the text of the treaty in its context, in light of its object and purpose, fixes the legal content of the law until subsequent state practice establishes an alternative interpretation. And so there's a stickiness to the law of treaties that may or may not exist in, the, in customary international law. So it really matters how we frame these debates. And so the way I understand it is primarily as a question of treaty interpretation, it actually takes a lot of subsequent state practice, a lot of uniformity of interpretation in order to shift the meaning of a treaty norm from its original understanding. And just to make explicit what I think is implicit in what you're saying is that where you do have a treaty like the Charter, you require this sort of overwhelming state practice to alter the meaning of the Charter, and that custom can't evolve in a way that's contrary to the treaty unless, again, you have this sort of overwhelming state practice and opinion euros to indicate a clearly contrary evolution of the law. Yeah, and I mean, of course, there's this, uh, there are two lingering questions about the relationship between custom and the charter. One is whether custom can overturn the charter, given the general supremacy of charter obligations. And then there's an even uh, kind of more abstract, but also deeper question to the extent that the charter represents a set of peremptory norms, use Kogan's norms. The general effect of that is that contrary state practice does not even generate customary international law. It's just in, immediately annulled in right. its legal effect. So those are, and again, I just want to emphasize that would be state practice that is contrary to the norms established by the Charter. There are other aspects of self-defense which may be functions of customary international law, and that's fine because there's no conflict. So some people think that necessity and proportionality are customary rules, and it's fine for them to evolve through a customary process so long as there's no conflict between uh, those norms and the, the norms reflected in the Charter. That's fine. But there are all these other potential problems. Right. Well, listen, we could go on uh, digging into the weeds of this for at least another hour, uh, but I promised in the introduction that we were going to talk a little bit about the Soleimani strike, oh, and, sure. and you have these two posts on that. So maybe in, in a minute or less, <laughs> you could try to just summarize. And I assume that your position on the Soleimani strike is very much influenced by precisely the arguments that you've laid out in, in these two posts. Absolutely. And, and really, it was in thinking about the Soleimani strikes and this general question of reprisals that I first really started thinking along the lines of the second post and the place of Article 51 within Chapter 7. Because I, I think when, when we think about why armed reprisals are unlawful, why it is the case that once an armed attack ends, the right of self-defense ends with it, you can understand that just within the concept of self-defense. How can you defend yourself against something that's already over? I think you can you know, run it that way. Right. 
But I think once you put Article 51 in the context of Chapter 7, the conclusion becomes pretty unavoidable that once this exceptional circumstance of an armed attack is over, you revert to the general rule. Once the act of aggression is over, you just have a threat to the, a potentially a threat to the peace going forward. And that's for the Security Council to address. So if an armed attack has occurred, it's over, you're worried that maybe in the future there might be another one. That's a threat to the peace. That's for the Security Council to address. And I think if you understand that, you better understand why armed reprisals are unlawful. Right. And so following from that on Soleimani, your view was, uh, as I think the view of most people was that it was unlawful. Yes, it was unlawful. It was an unlawful armed reprisal. And I should say, at best, because the public justification that the U.S. administration put forward, I mean, it's very hard to even identify an armed attack attributable to Iran at all, let alone an ongoing one or or an imminent one or anything like that. It was really, I think, um, a kind of legal justification that was hard to even understand in terms of mainstream understandings of, of international law, how the U.S. even thought this was on its face a coherent justification for what it had done before you even get to the question of the process. Well, that's great. Well, listen, I promised at the outset that we would return to talk a little bit about your book. And for those who uh, are interested, I purchased it recently on Amazon in Kindle version. So it's, it's available in electronic form, but it's Law and Morality and War from Oxford University Press from three years ago, I believe. Yes. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about sort of the over just, I mean, we could spend many episodes diving into the rich exploration in each chapter, but just the, I was really intrigued by the overarching sort of project that the book represents. And I thought you could say a few words about that. Yeah, great. So I think the overarching message of the book is that people thinking and writing about the law of armed conflict really need to engage with particularly moral philosophy and legal philosophy as well for a number of different reasons. So first, I think, given that we expect armed forces to comply with IHL, even when it might be difficult, risky, uh, they might perceive that it will make it harder for them to win and achieve their goals, we need to offer them an account of why they should still comply. And I think that has to be an account of IHL's moral legitimacy or authority or moral justification. And that simply saying, you know, because it's the law um, is not really going to be persuasive. So I think just to understand where where the, the moral legitimacy of IHL resides in an overarching sense. And then there are are more discrete issues. So there are norms of IHL whose moral credentials have been challenged and they need defense. Um, So there are individuals who who question whether civilian immunity, which is a sort of bedrock principle of IHL, uh, is morally justifiable or whether it's sometimes uh, morally permissible to, to target civilians and we need to have an answer for them. I think there are gaps in IHL, thankfully fewer of them now than before, um, but that still need to be closed. And by gaps, I mean moral gaps. 
areas where IHL um, does not provide armed forces with the moral guidance that they that they need, and this is particularly with respect to opposing combatants who could be safely captured rather than killed. And so if we're going to reform IHL, we need to have a moral basis for doing so. And finally, and maybe this is more controversially, I think that the interpretation of IHL requires some understanding of the applicable moral norms when you're using violence and armed conflict. So where IHL is vague, ambiguous, otherwise underdetermined, I think you need a sense of what the applicable moral norms are to interpret the law. Um, and particularly for those like states whose interpretations of the law settle vagueness, ambiguity, and other forms of underdeterminacy, they have a particular moral responsibility to interpret the law in its morally best light, to crystallize it in its morally best form. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of the, the overarching message. But as you were saying, you know, uh, many of the chapters hone in on very discrete issues about target verification, human shields, proportionality, and try to deal, dr drill deep on, into the, the underlying moral norms, as well as the applicable legal norms in those right. uh, different areas. So this clearly brought your legal and philosophical uh, sort of hearts together. Absolutely. Uh, but I guess it just strikes me that, I mean, there are two questions that arise when I just sort of started leafing through the introduction and grappling with the project is that, for many people, I think it will seem counterintuitive to be talking about morality in the context of war, right? Yep. And particularly IHL, uh, one of the objectives of which is to authorize killing, right? And so how, how do you really bring morality to bear on that? But even more broadly, you know, and I'm not a philosopher, but it strikes me that so many of the crises that are uh, afflicting the United States in particular, but the world in general, uh, can be reduced to sort of ethical lapses. I mean, a lack of ethics in, yep. in decision-making all over. And yet, uh, and I think this is, again, partic not particularly in the United States, but strong in the United States, when you try to bring up morality, you know, you sort of get this look like, what are you talking about? You know, we're, we're talking about war here. I recall once raising a moral question, you know, in a discussion about the Security Council, and people were like, why are you bringing up morality? It was though I was bringing up some sort of incredibly strange framework to, to address something that was entirely divorced, where, where you're clearly, your project is like saying that they're not at all divorced. But so how do you grapple with that sort of reaction that one, morality shouldn't be brought to bear on any of these things? And, and certainly uh, it has nothing to do with a barbaric practice like warfare. Yeah, so I think one of the, arguments for which the book has become known and, and some of my other work has become known is to deny that IHL authorizes killing. Um, so I argue that IHL is a prohibitive body of law. So it only tells you what you can't do. It doesn't tell you what you can do. And that's essential to IHL's integrity and its place in international law because of course IHL has to apply to all sides of a conflict the aggressor and the defender, the non-state actor and the state, everyone. It's actually essential to the nature and function of IHL that it only prohibits. It doesn't authorize, legitimate, or justify. And if you understand it in that way, then you can understand why or how it can be a moral body of law. 
how it can help uh, combatants better comply, not fully comply, but better comply with their moral obligations than they would if they were kind of left to their own devices and had to make incredibly difficult moral decisions under very difficult circumstances of stress and fear and peer pressure and groupthink and outgroup bias and, and all the rest. So that's set pretty central to the, the book's project. With respect to the kind of purchase of moral discourse, so I guess I've had a different experience maybe than you have. My general experience with militaries is that they are extremely concerned with the ethical propriety of their actions. They may understand the ethical propriety of their actions in ways that I, I, I wouldn't, but they're extremely concerned about essentially ensuring that the men and women under their command return home not only alive and physically in one piece, but also spiritually in one piece, uh, ethically in one piece with a clean conscience so they can live the rest of their lives feeling that they acted appropriately, even if they committed acts of violence with you know, pretty horrific consequences for, for other people. So I have actually found militaries in general to be very receptive to moral arguments. And the real question has been, can I convince them that those moral questions are also legal questions? Or do I have to say, well, the law is over here and morality is over here? Or can I convince them that actually there's a relationship between the two? That's interesting. And uh, you know, we'll, we'll sort of end on that hopeful, yeah, hopeful yeah, yeah. note. Um, but before I let you go, uh, I did want you to recommend three books or articles uh, largely relating to the, this area of the laws of war. So take it away. Yeah, great. Uh, so first uh, book for anyone listening to this podcast, whether you're a scholar, a student, you're just a, a, a person who's taken an interest, stumbled across this podcast, but you may not even be a lawyer. And so uh, I'm going to recommend um, Craig Forsey's I hope Forsese? Forsese. Is it Forsese? Ah, yeah. his book, uh, Destroying the Caroline. And the, the first, it's an incredibly uh, beautifully written book. Um, it's extremely accessible. It tells a fascinating story. Um, and in that way, it sits very comfortably alongside uh, Lincoln's Code by John Fabian Witt, The Internationalist by Una Hathaway and Scott Shapiro. Um, it is both legally very sophisticated, but also extremely enjoyable to read, interesting, fun, and so on. And although I actually disagree with Craig uh, about a couple of things, you learn an immense amount uh, from, the, uh, from the book, and it's extremely valuable for everyone. So everyone should read it. Maybe take a few things with a pinch of salt, but, but it's, it's really a wonderful book. So I highly recommend it to everyone. Um, a more, uh, more scholarly book that I think um, is a bit tougher, tougher sledding, but I think is really, really valuable uh, is this one. So it's Origins of the Right of Self-Defense in International Law by Tadashi Mori. And it, it is extremely informative. It collects uh, many, many different uh, sources. Again, I, I actually disagree a bit with some central conclusions that Mori draws, but I think it places front and center this very important question 
how exactly did this modern conception of self-defense against aggression, how did it relate to this 19th century conception, which is actually reflected in the Caroline correspondence, in which self-defense was actually um, a way to justify or excuse infringing the territory of another state that had not committed aggression against you. How did these two understandings of self-defense, did they coexist? Did one merge into the other? Did one fall away? I think that's a really uh, central question in this area of law. And I think Maury just collects a lot of really important sources that bear on that question, even though, again, I actually disagree with uh, his conclusion to some extent. So those are about really the, 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 the issues that we've been talking about on this podcast, uh, but I would be uh, remiss if I did not recommend a paper that is really about uh, IHL and human rights law. So this is uh, Yanina Dill's book chapter uh, toward a moral division of labor between international humanitarian law and international human rights law. So this is a, a chapter in a three-authored uh, volume by Cambridge. It was available for free from Cambridge a few months ago. I don't know if it still is, uh, but you should find it. I really think it is one of the finest pieces of scholarship uh, in that area of law. It is both theoretically extremely sophisticated, but also doctrinally extremely sophisticated. Uh, and it's just a, a wonderful piece of work. And, you know, I think it's uh, uh, technically a 2020 publication too, so it's technically hot <laughs> off the press. Even though I, I, I read it uh, a while ago, so uh, so I, I strongly, strongly recommend that. I just think that's first-rate scholarship. Great. Well, that, those are wonderful suggestions. Thank you, and we'll post links uh, to those on on the podcast website. Well, Adil, I've taken more of your time than than I asked, so thank you so much for being here. This is fascinating, uh, and we'll have to have you back to talk more about IHL and, and the work that you do in your book, because that, of course, is fascinating. I think we'll we'd have to do it one, one chapter at a time. But uh, we have lots more to talk about. So thank you so much. And I do hope that uh, these two podcasts or two uh, blog posts are the beginnings of a, a bigger project on this, because this, this sounds fascinating. Thanks so much for having me, Craig. OK, take care. This episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. You can find links to the material discussed today on our website at jibjabpodcast.com. And be sure to check out our next episode in which we will be speaking with Professor Ashley Deeks of the University of Virginia School of Law on her latest cutting edge work on how artificial intelligence may affect the laws of war. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do spread the word, share it on Facebook, Twitter, wherever, whatever social media you use. And follow us on Twitter at JibJabPodcast. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. See you next week.